Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1734. Today we're talking about Audi Quattro's World Rally Champions. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm across the pond in England with a very, very interesting guy by the name of Jeremy Walton. He lives in a really old church. Maybe we'll learn about that. Jeremy, welcome to Cars Yeah. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am, Mark. I'm strapped in and ready to go. All right. I'm trying to keep it on the track, sunny, uh, sunny side. Sunny side and shiny side up, I should say. Now, before I give you a proper introduction... I would love for you to share one little thing that maybe most people don't know about you, Jeremy. I keep chickens. I rescue chickens and keep them. You rescue chickens. Wow. Well, I know people that keep chickens, but I didn't know that chickens had to be rescued. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah. They're kept in big battery houses in Britain. And at about 18 months old, the farmers throw them out. But they're still alive. And they can still yield eggs for another two or three years. So when they arrive, they're what we call oven ready. They've got very few feathers because they've been rubbing in a metal cage. So we give them a bit of life around a yew tree and some graves in the church. And uh, in fact, chickens were jungle birds. So they love the trees. They love scratching around. And they cheer me up when I'm really depressed. Well, I think that's very noble. That's a wonderful thing that you do. And I know that you live in a church that was built in 1840. Am I right about that? You are absolutely right. But even more ancient was, in fact, there were churches here or places of worship mentioned right back to uh, 1066 when Britain got invaded. The reason that I say 1840 is that we had a wicked Henry VIII who raised all the churches to the floor. Uh, ours was one of them, but we got some of the walls left and they rebuilt it in Victorian times. So we put 1840 on it. And there's one yew tree here that's probably as old as that. Wow. And a couple of gravestones that are uh, marked uh, 1639. Wow. Well, that's pretty darn cool. Well, that's very fun. Well, let me give you a proper introduction and we'll take a nice little ride today with Jeremy Walton, who's a freelance journalist editor and author with 33 original titles to his credit. He rides motorcycles and he cares for chickens. And he's been a pro rider and driver for media motoring tests as well as television and automotive advertisements. Jeremy started in minis and graduated to competition cars, including an original Ford GT40. And he was a former Ford Motorsport employee and consultant. His books cover marks including Ford, BMW, Audi, Lotus, and classic Mini Coopers, to name just a few. And his latest book that we're going to talk about today is titled Quattro, The Race and Rally Story, 1980-2004. to And it explores 24 years of factory-prepared and factory-supported Audi Quattros in the motorsport world. Audi Quattros, of course, collected four World Rally Championships, five American driver manufacturing crowns, and a single-year haul of seven international touring car titles plus numerous other honors. We'll be back in just a minute to talk about Audis, Jeremy's, and maybe chickens. But first, a word from our valued sponsors. Uh, Before we move forward, give them a listen. Give them a little love. We'll be right back. Buckle up. 
Do you have a pet in your household that loves to go for rides? Our pets are part of our families, but they can be very hard on your vehicle's interior. Covercraft offers a wide variety of solutions to protect your vehicle from Fido's rough treatment. Canine cargo area covers are padded for comfort and provide door-to-door protection. Pet pads have built-in features that keep cargo areas and seats protected. Covercraft's quality pet solutions cover cargo areas, bucket or bench seats, and protect from damaging claws, pet fur and hair, mud, moisture, and drool from permanently damaging those fine finishes on your vehicle's interiors. Choose from a variety of styles and covers for almost every vehicle that's made. And here's something I've got just for you and for Fido. Use the code yeah 120 at Covercraft.com and you'll get 10% off your Covercraft pet protection order. That's right, 10% off. That'll make Fido happy. Simply use the code yeah 120 Y-E-A-H-120 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. And Fido too. American Collectors Insurance, that's how I now protect my Porsche Turbo. The one I call my orange crush. Are you insuring your classic vehicles on your regular daily driver auto policy? Then your special vehicles are at risk. Your regular auto insurance carrier won't tell you how much you'll get until after a claim. And more than likely, you'll be in for a rude awakening. With agreed value policy from American Collectors Insurance, you'll be paid your vehicle's full agreed value. No surprises. If you're driving your collector car less than 5,000 miles a year, Do what I did. Call American Collectors Insurance and get your very own agreed value policy tailored to your specific vehicle. If you're like me, you're picky about who works on your special ride. A great policy allows you to choose your repair shop of choice, and that means you'll know the job is done right. I shopped around and decided to protect my car with American Collectors Insurance. They've been protecting vehicles since 1976. Give them a call for a quote today at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. And protect the ones you love. I did at American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. All right, Jeremy, we're back. Now, I would love to start this journey with you with a success quote. Maybe it's a mantra or a saying, being a wordsmith like you are. Uh, I'm going to put a little pressure on you. I'm sure you're going to come up with something very special for us. It's a nice way to get those inspirational tires turning a little bit. So, Jeremy, I know you love to drive. Take the wheel. Okay. I'm holding the steering wheel, but it's a cliche, really. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. (laughs) You know, I love this. So explain that a little more, how it's applied to your very interesting and fun life. Okay. So, uh... When I was a young man, all I wanted to do was was race. I had no money and two kids. So in order to get into the motor racing world, I had to find a, a vehicle to travel on, if you like. And that vehicle was uh, motoring journalism. And I was uh, qualified as a proper journalist. It took me three years to do that. That's the try, try again. I kept applying to magazines, but they wanted technical qualifications, uh, which I didn't have. So I just kept battering at the doors calling on people, going to shows, stuff like that, shaking hands, pumping the flesh. But uh, what it really yielded for me in the end was uh, I was reading a classified ad in my uh, favorite magazine, which was aimed at uh, youngsters. And in the back, it said they wanted a qualified journalist. No 
uh, car wannabes, a qualified journalist to sort some things out. I knocked on that door and it went half open and uh, I walked my application round. I was living in the city where the magazine was, walked my application round and I got the job by the time the first letters came in. So that was my break. Well, you know, it reminds me of a fellow Brit guy the night by the name of Winston Churchill. That famous quote, "Never ever ever give up." Definitely is something that maybe it's a it's part of you Brits over there. You just don't give up. But that's the way you have to treat everything in life. Is you have to just keep trying, keep going. So many people give up so quickly. And you just have to keep going after it. And that certainly is what you've done. Now, today, you've written so many great books. But today, we're going to talk about this book on Quattro. And I'd love for you to share some stories about what you learned as you put this book together, what the book is really all about. Of course, Quattro is known as their racing and rally history. I mean, the incredible success that they have. So dive a little bit into this wonderful book titled Quattro, The Race and Rally Story. Okay, it started for me uh, as a result of my Ford connections. When I left the company, I, I carried on as a consultant, and uh, I knew Hannu Mikola, who was their lead Finnish rally driver. He told me one afternoon that he was going to go to Germany and test this Audi car because it was going to be sensational uh, because it had got four-wheel drive. They'd, they'd managed to get permission to put four-wheel drive on the things. Previous to that, Jeep and uh, Range Rover here had run in th endurance events, but they were not permitted to run in world championship rounds. Anyway, long story short, Mr. Mikola came good in that car, took, took the contract, even though he had years of success with Ford and had a Mercedes contract in his pocket as well. And uh, when he came back to Britain to compete in a world championship round, he gave me a ride in the car. Ah, that was it. I realized that uh, <laughs> my... <laughs> My Ford affections were really, really out of date. And that uh, here was a whole new world, turbocharged, four-wheel drive. It hurt your neck when it accelerated on mud. Amazing. Yeah, they were had an amazing history of wins when they came out. And I think about Audi nowadays, you just think four-wheel drive, Audi. I mean, something that just comes to mind. But back then, that was something really new for a streetcar, if you will, not to mention rally and race cars, right? Yeah, right. And, and I think that the most interesting quote that uh, some of the reviewers have pulled out was that uh, when they were first making plans to produce this car, uh, one of the executives, one of the very high up executives said, I can't see even 400 members of the public uh, buying this. Today, there are over 10 million vehicles with Quattro badges on. Yeah, I guess he missed that one just a little bit. Like you missed the Beatles. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You said something interesting at the beginning here. They got permission. Now, is there something you know that I don't know about? Did they have to get permission from the German government or from some kind of department of transportation to put four-wheel drive in a streetcar? Good question. The basis of it was that you were not allowed to run four-wheel drive in world championship rallies. Audi needed to do world championship rallies to get the prestige like winning at Monte Carlo, something to advertise to sell vehicles. So this was absolutely key. You have to get permission, which really hurts in Britain, from a bunch of Parisians at the uh, FIA, Federation International Automobile. They founded the rules. They got the bat and ball for international motorsport. So in order to homologate or recognize any vehicle, you have to go cap in hand to the French and, and make a case. Well, somehow an executive at Audi who'd been there a long time called Jürgen Stockmar, he campaigned amongst the other rally team managers 
including Ford and Launcher Fiat. And he said to them, we're thinking of running a four-wheel drive vehicle. You don't mind, do you guys? And they all laughed. They said, no, no, that's, that's not a problem. You're just going to be carrying a load of ironmongery around. It's, it's not going to do you any good. I think um, the Audi executive forgot to add that uh, the vehicle was going to be too turbocharged, have about 150 horsepower and any, more than any opposition. And it was going to have a way of getting it to the ground. Ice, mud, perfect. Absolutely perfect. Oh, brilliant. I love that. It's a cool story. So tell us some of the interesting things you discovered when you were doing the research and writing this book about the Quattros and their racing history. Well, I, th I think I'd like to start with the people. There's a man who uh, recently uh, died, Ferdinand Piach, who was uh, part of the Porsche dynasty. Um, but he was a key figure at Audi when I started doing the research. And I was fortunate enough to have his blessing while I, while I was in there, uh, which had been granted by the sort of public relations departments in Germany and, and Britain. So I got to sit with him a, a couple of times. But the real meat and vegetables came from the engineers who'd worked on the project. Now, sadly, today, those, those engineers obviously aren't there anymore. They've retired. They go gliding. They go skiing or whatever. So I was very fortunate in, in the early 80s to be given access to all areas. Well, actually, I'm sure they hid a lot of areas away from me, but that's, that's what they told me. Yep. <laughs> and with my schoolboy German, I wasn't going to argue. Anyway, Ferdinand Piach was an autocratic, dynamic guy with the driest sense of humor you ever met. You knew that if he'd been in charge in 1939, Britain would just be a German sub-state. He was so thorough, so focused. But I was lucky, I was fortunate that uh, the, the guy decided he would speak to me. And he was the one who got the permissions with his sort of Porsche royalty behind him. He could push a project through. So when I was studying Audi and going to events and so on, usually in a corner somewhere, Pierre would be there overseeing it. And he was really, really harsh on his staff. I haven't heard anybody, including Henry Ford, too, when I was at the company, who had anything like the drive focus. And this guy, of course, had a technical background as well. So he was an awesome force. Probably the only chink in his makeup was he didn't really do humanity very well. Small story. Audi Quattro for the street later on had a voice option in the, in the dashboard. And Pierre said to me uh, over, over lunch at one point, he said, uh, it's a woman's voice. The only time I want to hear a woman's voice is in the bedroom. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> try, ouch. You try, try that in 2020. <laughs> it was yeah. Said, I have yeah. to say, it was said in 1984, five, and Mr. Pierre had 13 children, one, three children, and I think he had three wives. So there was something attractive about him. Well, something, but yeah, I'm not surprised three wives with a statement like that. Holy cow. Got it. What was one of the biggest revelations when it comes to what Quattro and Audi did on the racetrack that you uncovered? I'm afraid it was it was a personal discovery, really. When the road cars were available, I sort of covered world championship rallies. So I'd go around the route uh, and go to all the checkpoints and talk to the drivers and so on. And I'd been used to, um, well, there were four motor company products, but ma many others just with two wheel drive. So I'd go around a 2000 mile route in pouring rain or snow or whatever. I just felt like I was in my front room and that made a convert. Wow. And that's, I've been a zealot ever since, I'm afraid. Yeah, they're pretty spectacular vehicles. When you were working on this book, was there something that 
you came across that really, really kind of set you back that you didn't expect at all? Yeah, there were there were quite a f- few things that that's inevitable. I, th- I think my biggest surprise was was a general one that no publisher really wanted to publish the story of the American racing. The rally thing's well known. You know, it was obvious that it got a four wheel drive high performance vehicle against a bunch of people with rear drive and less power. You, you're going to do some winning, especially with the world's finest drivers. But then, and it was to be fair, it was part of PX mantra. He always said that Quattro should be proved on the on the racetrack as well as in muddy roads. And it was, again, his dynamism. Even when they were doing the first test, they took the car, the prototype cars to Hockenheim and ran them around versus a Porsche 928. And PF wouldn't let go till it was quicker than a 928 around that track. This is 1980, actually, it's probably 79, 78, long before the car made its debut. The other sensation... I have to say, was when they launched it at Geneva Show. Now, as a Brit, the legend is Jaguar E-Type launched at Geneva Show. Million stories about that. But the the Audi Quattro in the first generation had an equal impact. And it had an equal impact for Brits because they were so clever. They put the guys in the car on a snow-sided mountain straight away, out the show halls. Jesus, that was clever. <laughs> yeah, showmanship for sure. That's interesting, putting the car up against a 928. That's really fascinating, uh, that dynamic dynamic difference between Porsche, Audi, the fact that Pick was part of Porsche, really, for such a long time. And then to put that car up against that vehicle, that was an interesting dynamic going on there. I wonder if a couple people at Porsche raised an eyebrow to that. Well... The, the PX family had caused quite a lot of trouble inside Porsche. Need a Porsche expert. I'd, I, I must say my personal business mantra is I don't do Porsche, I don't do MG, and I don't do Jagger. Why? Because other people have done it, done it really well, or done it really badly. I don't want to be there. <laughs> and, uh, a journalist legend in England, a guy who won the Mila Milia with Sterling Moss, once said to me, You've got a good thing going on there, Jeremy. Write about the things you know, and nobody can argue with you. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's great advice for anybody, even when it comes to writing or speaking. (laughs) You know, I'm going to write that one down. I think that's a good one. I always ask my guests to share a big challenge they faced in their life or their career. Now, this could tie to the book. Or it could tie to something else in your life. You have such an interesting life. You know, I'll tell our listeners in our pre-show chat, Jeremy spent some time in Southern California where I grew up and we had a great time talking about Newport Beach, La Jolla, all areas that he'd been to, uh, Riverside Raceway back when it existed and so forth. But I'd love for you to talk about a big challenge that you faced. And more importantly in this story is how did you overcome it? And what was that lesson learned so that you could move forward in a very positive way? Okay, uh it's it's pretty personal rather than uh, automotive. Okay. But my father died when I was 13. Oh, good. And I'd been a, a spoiled child with everything that you could have, a riverside home and, and all that stuff. And within six months, I was uh, living 100 miles away in a rented house with my one surviving parent and uh, making sure that uh, I started to earn some money on paper rounds and being a lifeguard at a local public school. Sorry, public school is the posh school in England. So what it made me do was stop being a spoiled little brat and get out there and get off my butt and do something. And that really gave me 
a dynamism and a really unattractive focus that um, made sure that, yeah, you, you can achieve your business goals, but your um, personal life may be spoilt by your focus uh, on what you want to achieve. And uh, as an older man, I'm 74 years old now, it's hard to let go of that competitive streak. And that doesn't really suit an older life. I understand. You know, I'm really sorry to hear that. What a formidable age to lose a father and then for it to disrupt your life the way that it did. But I really find it wonderful, the fact that you see, I don't know where in in your point in your life you saw it, how that molded you in a positive way. Because most people would say, well, that's tragic, that's terrible, and you could go down another path. But for you, it's kind of like, pull your boots up, kid. Time to get to work. Very tough age to do that at 13. Maybe if you were 18, 19, 20, but that's a very formidable time in your life. I think on a reality check, I'd been used to pretty well everything in life. And I thought if I want to get that back, I'm going to have to work for it. And that was the thing. And for until I was about 55 years of age, I worked to try and get really my father's old life back. And uh, I lived in the same area where he lived with us and all the rest of it. And that was like going to La Jolla or a, or a high-end estate area. I lived in a place called Henley-on-Thames. And to get there, I had to live in some badlands in London and uh, uh, east of England where the shotgun did the talking. Yeah, the shotgun did the talking. There's another great quote. I, I've got a couple from you today. Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing a really personal part of your life with us. And I guess in a way, I don't guess, it sounds like in a way, this really helped form what your life has become and the drive that you have to get things done. And as you said at the beginning, for the doors to crack open and get your foot in there and get some some work done in your life. Sounds like you've done pretty well for yourself, Jeremy. I did. I should pay tribute to my first wife, who unfortunately passed away last year. Obviously, you need a great woman behind you. Uh, her name was Patricia Ann, and she did a hell of a solid job with two kids and to start off with uh, one room with uh, with the cooker in it and a baby. So uh, she, she did some really tough stuff, and I wouldn't, you know, that's why I could then get on with business. And it was an old-fashioned old layout where I did try to hunt a gather, and she made sure that uh, I'd got something to come home to, and together it. It made it work, you know. Well, my condolences for losing your, your wife, Patricia Ann. Sounds like a wonderful woman uh, and a wonderful life that she uh, helped you both make uh, in the world. And I think it's great, too, today. You're still working hard and doing things in the field that you're so passionate about. You're not sitting on a porch, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no. And in fact, we've, we've got some uh, forward projects now. The Audi book seems to have woken people up that I'm still alive and capable of moving a typewriter. <laughs> you are and, quite uh, alive, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I've been, I've been very fortunate. Uh, my, my mother was a 100-yard sprinter and my father was a 100-yard swimmer, so they, they were both pretty competitive. And if, when they came to watch school sports, they wouldn't speak to me if I was second. If I was first, they, I got a hello. <laughs> wow. Well, there yeah. you go, that competitive uh, DNA. was tough. Tough love. Yeah, yeah, well, hey, it worked. It worked. Let's take a short break. We come back. I want to dive into your personal passion for cars here, which you obviously have. So sit tight. Here's a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Did you know that Cars Yeah! is in the top 1% of all podcasts based on listenership, according to Libsyn? 
the premier RSS feed for podcasts in the United States. That's right. And Cars Yeah is the only five-day-a-week automotive-focused podcast for you to get your message into the ears of thousands of listeners daily from all over the world. Plus, DuPont Registry recommended Cars Yeah is one of their top 10 car podcasts for you to enjoy. Cars yeah has experienced tremendous growth, plus your ads are evergreen, meaning they never go away. And more and more listeners find Cars yeah every day for their daily dose of automotive inspiration. Do you want to expose your brand to a highly targeted list of automotive enthusiasts in a very unique in very personal way, well, I can help you. Contact me, Mark Green, at mark at carsyad.com or through the website at carsyad.com today to learn more. Did you know that less than 3% of all automotive technicians in the United States are women? You may not be surprised, but you should be concerned because our country is facing a massive technician shortage right now. Skilled, qualified techs are in high demand, And we need young women and men to consider these careers as a viable path to a fulfilling life. I've interviewed hundreds of women in the automotive sector here on Cars Yeah, and I know that women make great techs. That's why I support the nonprofit TechForce Foundation and its Women Techs Rock initiative to ensure women see themselves in the profession, the industry, and the workforce. Learn more at techforce.org today. All right, Jeremy, we're back, and I'd love for you to share a story that instigated that passion that you have for cars. Was there a pivotal moment when you think back, maybe as a young lad or a boy, or maybe it took a little while when you knew, you know what, I'm a bit of a car and a bike guy? Yeah, my, my, my dad was was pretty keen, and uh, he had an MG all tricked up for track stuff, but he was more of a, a horse person professionally, and uh, he actually got to pretty high-level uh, owning horses in Britain, not riding them, but uh, training them and so on. But the cars were his second passion. You, you often find it in England, I'm sure elsewhere, good horsemen, they have really good hands on the reins. So at one stage of my life, we trained drivers to appear in celebrity events. And we had a couple of European champion uh, riders in. And uh, they were so much quicker, so much more sensitive than any other celebrity we had. The worst a boxer dressed in pink. <laughs> well, he didn't point out that he was a heavyweight boxer. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, you know, you think about it. I remember being in in racing school when I was vintage racing, and instructors talking about the proper way to hold the steering wheel, not grip it tight, but light touch. And you look at photographs of especially older race car drivers and before the paddle shifters and so forth and the way their hands were on that wheel and a delicate little dance so i never thought about that relationship between horses and reins and vehicles and steering wheels but yeah makes sense That's how it happens. yeah that it really does translate i've seen it uh, quite a lot of times it's pretty hard to beat uh, somebody who's got a equine background. If, if celebrities come together, and of course Britain's perhaps a more horsey place than, than most, usually uh, and you put them in equal cars, well, allegedly equal cars, they'll, uh, they'll usually be one, two, or, or thereabouts. Interesting. Wow, that is very cool. Well, let's talk about a, a really special car vehicle in your life. And I want to mention to our listeners here, Jeremy here today has some interesting ownerships and, and projects. And let me let me list a few. A 1958 
Frog Eye Austin Healy Sprite, a 1998 Lotus Elise 135 Sport, a 2006, there's the Audi TT Quattro Sport, and uh, assorted Range Rovers, of course. You can't be a Brit without having owned a Range Rover or two, and a 19... Or three. <laughs> or three, or 19, and a 1985 BMW 635 CSI there's a pretty cool car. Uh, tell me about one special vehicle in your life that really has a place or holds a place in your heart and maybe share a memory or two about that vehicle. Okay, the one that, that fired my enthusiasm personally was uh, a Triumph Bonneville motorcycle. This was a real revelation. It was about as uh, fast as an E-Type, but it cost me 300 pounds instead of 2,000. And uh, uh, as, a, as a young and foolish man, uh, I would go out looking for Jaguars. <laughs> of course, you couldn't, go, you couldn't go around corners at the same speed. Two wheels does not equal four. But um, the first time I did 100 miles an hour on that motorcycle at night around a local town bypass, that was an experience. That's literally like riding an iron bedstead that uh, has got a boat engine in it. It just vibrated from one end. Your teeth rattled, your eyes watered. Yeah. But Jesus, it was fun. Yeah, the Bonneville. I mean, that's such a classic. Uh, anybody who loves old bikes, that's got to be on a short list. Yep, absolutely. And it was uh, a 1961, so it was with a separate gearbox to the engine, which, and it was all laid out as what we call a cafe racer. So it had the low bars, the rear sets, and all that. It was just, just absolutely it. But when I met the aforesaid first wife, she had one ride on the back of that and said, you're getting a car. <laughs> No doubt. No doubt. Well, that meant she cared about you. That's all that that meant. Uh, I, when I got back into riding bikes, one of the motorcycles I bought was a 750 Ducati Monster. And I, oh, had, the, wow. I had the brilliant idea of buying my wife a helmet and a leather jacket and <laughs> taking her for a ride. And we went on this ride. I, I didn't go crazy. I was very careful. I came back. She got off and I said, what do you think? And she said, I think you need to sell this thing. And uh, she said, uh, I'm never getting on that again. And you do know we have two young children that you need to raise, right? And uh, yeah, that, that was a bad, bad option for me. And then I got even crazier, Jeremy. I bought an MV Agusta F4. Wow. Yeah. And then she looked at oh. me and realized I was totally insane. So uh, yeah, there you go. I have a very introspective question for you, my friend. If you woke up tomorrow... And you were manifest as a vehicle. What would Jeremy Walton be? But more importantly in the question is, why? He would be amphibious. Amphibious. I love water. I want an amphibious vehicle. Amphicar. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, sorry, I don't want to own one. If I was a car, I'd be amphibious because I love water. I was born under the sign of the crab, Cancerian, and... I do. I, I've lived beside water. I absolutely adore it in, in, in every form. And I make sure that the chickens have it every day. Nobody else bothers, but uh, they have water every day. So it would be an amphibious vehicle. I have one experience of it. A German, a German hotelier took me for a ride, not on the Rhine, the Moselle, in an amphibious vehicle, which looked like a Triumph Herald. I can't remember what it might have been, a DKW or something like that. And it was bright green lime green and it was convertible and i thought yeah this is really cool we drove down a ramp into the moselle and off we chugged fantastic you know the amphicar when my son was small i was down on a local lake here with a friend who'd bought a new chris craft or actually it was an old chris craft in 1958 wow. yeah and we were getting ready to go out and i was helping him back the boat in and 
my son, who was about five or six at the time, said, Dad, Dad, there's a car in the water. And I said, <laughs> what are you talking about? He goes, there's a car in the water. And I said, no, no, the car, the boat's going in the water. He goes, no, Dad, there's a car in the water. And I turned around, and this gentleman who lives on a small island in this lake came driving up the boat ramp in his amphicar. Sure enough, there was a car in the water. Oh, yeah. So there you go. But I love the way you answer that, Jeremy. And I think what I'm going to do for you here, because of your adventurous nature, I'm going to make you that 007 Lotus James Bond car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How does that sound? That is spree. And in fact, um, shameless business plug, I did write an Esprit book years ago for a publisher in... um, Colorado Springs, Coterie Publishing. Okay. And they do a lot of Lotus books. William William Taylor, I think that's his name. Uh, and we did the Elise for him as well. All right. But uh, I must say, Colorado Springs is pretty special to me. I've got some friends there who uh, I've spent time with, and they've been kind to lend me cars and stuff. But for a Brit, I, I couldn't believe we did a drive around, and we drove for a day, and we'd done 700 miles, and we were still in the same state. It just, just doesn't happen in Britain. I'd, I'd have got to Scotland by then. Well, try coming to Texas sometime. You could drive around for a oh. week and still be in the same state. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, fair. Uh, exactly. What's one of your personal habits, Jeremy, that you believe has contributed to your success over these years? I think um, focus and determination, really. You know, that's, that's, that's what gets results. Whatever talent you have, uh, I think it applied to Graham Hill back in the the day I remember talking to people who ran him in world championship races and that you could see that uh, Jim Clark had talent and it was effortless for Graham Hill it was a real grind and I'm a grinder there ain't nothing wrong with that now you've no doubt had a lot of drinks and meals with very cool people is there one person in particular maybe you haven't either living or someone who's passed that you'd love to sit down with he has passed recently. I never had a meal with him. I sat in his workshop for an afternoon. His name was Daniel Sexton Gurney, uh, and his protege was Swede Savage, who was alive at that point. Tells you how long ago it was. Yeah. And yeah. I went from Newport Beach to visit with, with him. I think it was in Orange County. And for me, just absolute hero. And I never, I didn't know Jim Clark, but it's said that Dan was the only driver that, Jim really feared. And so far as we know, Jim Clark was the best. And when you were talking earlier about the light hands on a wheel, I did see Jim Clark race quite a lot. And it was actually really boring because nothing seemed to happen. You know, there was no skids. There were no slides. It's not like I should imagine watching Parnelli Jones and a Mustang must have been just it. (laughs) I, I love action. But Jim Clark proved this is how you do it. Apparently, all he wanted to be was a sheep farmer. <laughs> well, Jimmy was smooth, that's for sure. When yeah. it comes to automotive advice, what's the best advice someone else ever offered to you, Jeremy? Well, it was connected with advice. I had a very fam- uh, famous manager at Ford called Stuart Turner, who'd managed the BMC team on Monte Carlo and many other places. And I had to work for him as a sort of second in command and, and do his wishes. And um, I was in his office one day and he said look jeremy don't be afraid of failure fail as often as you like but come back with a result in the end failure teaches you success doesn't so that's the best advice i had 
You know, uh, Nicky Lauda had a great quote about that, that he's learned a lot more from his losses than he ever did from his wins. And he always uh, said, never discount a loss because you can learn a lot from it. So as we are in this new year, 2021, I'd encourage everybody out there, dare to fail and fail big. Go out there and try something you've never tried before. Give it a swing because uh, you know what? You may find it's something you really love. Absolutely. Yep. Now, when it comes to great resources, today we have resources that you and I as a young person never dreamed would be available to us. But is there a great resource that's a go-to for you you'd like to share? Uh, most, of, most of the things are, are pretty obvious. But in order to be an effective writer, you're cultivating contacts that you hope are out of the limelight because you don't really want your rivals into that and you don't really want your rivals to learn how you're getting stuff. Same as a race driver, you know. If uh, somebody says, well, I do that corner flat out, you think, right, okay, well, that's one thing I'm not going to do <laughs> because the crash will be expensive and painful. Oh, yeah. So uh, the resources that I use are... Uh, the web resources are incredible. And I must say, particularly with this Audi book, it enabled me to do the U.S. side a hell of a lot better than uh, I could have done in the past. The reason for that was that I spent time with Champion Racing um, of Florida, Pompano Beach in, in Florida, in the early millennium. But the web enabled me to catch up and get in contact with some of their lead drivers uh, in 2020, 2019. And if we hadn't had the web, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to get some so many quotes from some wonderful drivers who'd driven the stuff. And I also wouldn't have caught up with some stories that were sad in a way. The proprietor of Champion Racing died, of course, Dave Mirage. And uh, also the photographer, a very special photographer that uh, did a lot of the shoots when I drove a car in the U.S., he died as well. Uh, he was ex-military submarines, but... Um, Civilian life just didn't do it for him. And uh, he took wonderful photographs. He was really techy, but uh, I think there's a lesson for all of us there. You you have to preserve some human relationships as well. Absolutely. Yeah, tough thing to do last year when we were all locked up and kept away from everybody. So uh, we're all wishing much, much better year this year and the new year as things progress. So let's hope that happens. I'll remind everybody, the book we're talking about today, Quattro, The Race and Rally Story, I'll put links to how you can get a, your hands on a copy, and I encourage you to add this to your automotive library. It's absolutely brilliant. Is there another book you might share? Now, you've written lots and lots of books, and I would assume, do you have an author page on Amazon I can link to where people can find Got those it. books? Yeah, it's just straightforward, Jeremy Walton, okay. and uh, that that's the best way of seeing seeing what I've done. Incidentally, I did write one novel as well, which inevitably had an automotive uh, background and i enjoyed doing that as a relaxation away but for me the best book is the next book and <laughs> the, next, the next book shameless plug coming up is a ford book for the first time in 25 years i'm going back to it and what i'm going to do is talk about 50 years of fast forwards that i've actually driven and to that end the gt40 thing came not when i was at the company but ooh, 10 15 years later when they've got two in England, which they've had from new. So, you know, they're GT40s, which is like the first thing you want to do. You will have seen this in vintage racing. And I ended up for two or three years driving sort of VIPs around who weren't allowed to drive the, the GT40s. And I drove them from a 
a country house called Bewley, where there's a museum, literally around the garden with the company chairman in, to Le Mans, the preview, in 1996, celebrating the 1966 win. So that was a huge privilege, and it's one I intend to make shameless use of in the next title. Well, no doubt. Oh, my gosh. That's quite a chauffeur job. I think that's the best chauffeur job in the world. So I got paid. Even better. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, do you, have a, that. do you have a time that that book would be coming out that we can look forward to? Schedule, schedule is April uh, 2022. I didn't want to tie myself to a short turnaround after the, the Audi book because the rollout for the Audi book has been a little bit more protracted in the US and it was also slightly later in the UK than I would have liked. We were lucky to catch the 40th anniversary actually, but we did and I'm pleased about that. It was a complete accident. I just I'd been trying to get the race at, the racing side in for a long long time and oddly enough, all, all the publishers wanted was rally stories but hey, we found somebody who agreed. There you go. I love it. All right, we're up to the checkered flag here. We're almost at the end of our ride together here, Jeremy. I'm going to buy you a collector car today, something very fun to park in your garage. Don't let the chickens jump all over it, but uh, I want you to enjoy this car. It needs to tick a lot of boxes, something that you'll drive, something you'll enjoy. But there's a couple rules to the game that might help you make the decision. One is it's the only collector car you can have. The other is you can't sell it to fund whatever you want to do in life. It's got to be a, <laughs> it's got to be a keeper so that little trick is off the table. You know me too well. Well, I've learned <laughs> I'd after I've flipped it out the door. <laughs> yeah, after 1734 interviews, I've learned you tricky car guys. So what am I going to buy you today, Jeremy, that's going to stay in your garage? You're going to buy me a 1962 Ferrari Lusso in dark blue uh. with a white stripe. I love it. Uh, yeah. Dark blue with a white stripe. Kind of reminds me of Sir Sterling Moss a little bit. You got it. That's yeah. my favorite one. Absolutely. But also, I think uh, uh, Mr. McQueen, who was quite good at pedaling around, he had one. And I think his was blue or dark. I had a red one for a week in uh, 1970, which was offered to me for £2,500. That wouldn't have been more than, oh. yeah, <laughs> than $4,000. And at the time, my house was worth a little bit more than that, but it had two children and a wife in it. Yeah. And they didn't seem keen on the part exchange. I should explain why why I was able to access the car. In fact, I drove the car two or three times, but that doesn't matter. The car had had a connecting rod go through the block and my uh, race entrance had repaired it. But a repaired Ferrari doesn't fetch the same money. So if you take it back to 1970, 2500 was still the price of a, a three bedroom house in England. A Ferrari Lusso. Nice choice, my friend. You're going to look good driving through the countryside with a couple chickens in the seat beside you uh, and maybe some eggs or two in the back of that car. Jeremy, you've taken me on a fabulous ride today. This has been really fun. I want to thank you for sharing your life and your journey and uh, I commend, uh, commend you on continuing to write fantastic books for us. I can't wait to hear about the next one. I want to do a shout out. Thank you to my good friend, Judy Stropus who introduced us together. Judy brings us some wonderful guests here on Cars. Yeah, she always knows the coolest people, and you have not let me down in that case. Before I let you go, though, in this new year, is there one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance you might offer everybody before you drive off into the English countryside in that 62 Lusso? <laughs> Just keep on doing what you're doing and enjoy it. Yeah, life is important. Enjoy it. And in this new year, you know what? Again, dare to fail. Get out there. Push yourself a little bit. 
like you would in a Luso on a tight corner on an English country road. Jeremy, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your life with me today. This has been brilliant fun. I always love crossing the pond. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Thank you. It was wonderful. This has been great. GS Events was founded by Cindy Sisson and Teresa Gilpatrick. Together, they create strategic alliances, curated events, and business development connecting automotive brands to discerning audiences. Their flagship offering, Women Shifting Gears, amplifies women's voices and participation in the automotive culture. Through strategically developed events, they create innovative concepts and collaborations that create remarkable professional and personal experiences you won't find anywhere else. GS Events' immersive, inclusive opportunities create networking, skill building, and unforgettable experiences. Whether you enjoy rallies, concours, auctions, restoration, the business side of collective cars, or you always have yearned to expand your skills to drive vehicles, To its fullest potential, GS Events has automotive events and experiences designed just for you. And by the way, both Cindy and Teresa are past guests here on Cars Yeah, so give them a listen. You can find gsevents.live on their website today. Kevin Buckler is a winning racer and team owner of the Racers Group. He has over 100 professional wins, multiple wins at the 24-hour of Daytona and a win at Le Mans. Kevin realized the racing world is about the people and founded Adobe Road Winery. He and his team have created a winning combination with the Racing Series, four ultra-premium red wine blends that are in a class of their own with a racing twist. Just like in racing, these wines comprise of art, precision, engineering, science, superb taste, all blended together with a whole lot of fun. There are four carefully crafted blends with race-inspired names. Redline, Apex, Shift, and the 24. When you purchase all four, you get the entire lineup in a beautifully designed gift box. There's a printed description of the blends inside the box lid, and every bottle is parked in a protective die-cut placeholder. The bottles feature three-dimensional labels, and I promise you'll want to keep them after enjoying these delicious wines. The box is so cool, you'll want to keep it too. The Racing Series is a killer gift for the automotive enthusiasts in your life, and I have a deal for you. If you use the code CARSYEAH, all one word, all caps, at checkout, you'll get $10 off any purchase of wine from the Racing Series. Your wine ships promptly and arrives quickly. Use the code CARSYEAH at checkout for $10 off on your purchase today. There's always a seat at the table for excellence, with the racing series. Go to adoberoadwines.com and use the code CARSYAT today to get your deal. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to carsyeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!